So we're going to continue in our series, The Four. And uh, The Four is a series that we designed around the four miracles that Jesus performed throughout his ministry to indicate that he was the Messiah. And these were uh, miracles that would only be able to be performed by the Messiah. And so uh, two weeks ago, Brody introduced it with the healing of the leper, where uh, we just really heard this amazing story where Jesus will be willing to come into contact with the worst of us, of who we are. And leprosy was an incurable disease. It was highly contagious, and it truly is a representation of sin in all of its spiritual uh, you know, examples. And so what it is, is, is Jesus was making contact with the worst of what we are the, and bringing a miraculous healing to something that he shouldn't even be touching. He touched the, the leper, and it was against the Mosaic law to do such a thing. And then, and then you see, uh, last week, Greg was talking about the, the demon-possessed man, and, and we just learned a really valuable lesson and a great uh, observation of God's supreme authority in a spiritual sense over the enemy. And sometimes in our lives, we can begin to be deceived into thinking that Satan has all of this great control and power over our lives, but us who have been rescued and brought into the light, that power has been broken, and now we are submitted to God, and we are owned by God and possessed by God, and so now he will cover and protect us, and at the very name of Jesus, the enemy will flee, and he demonstrated his authority over evil and over Satan by casting these demons out of this individual, and then this morning, we're going to be talking about the man born blind. And so when you think about all of, before I read the verses, when you think about all of these, these uh, signs that God has given to, these messianic symbols that God has given to the church, and you think about other aspects of prophecy that God had brought forth to prove that what the Messiah would look like. I loved what Brody said a few weeks ago when he was talking about how he was lost in Walmart, and he got separated from his mom, and, and how when he was separated from his mom, uh, he heard the code orange over the loudspeaker, and then someone approached him with a blue vest, and, and then as they spoke to him, they used his proper name of Broderick, and he s- started to piece together all of these things to say, okay, well, these are all signs to me that this is something I can trust, this is someone I can trust in. And actually, they helped bring him back to his mom. And whether or not he got in trouble, I don't know. Um, If it was my kid, they would have been. But when we think about how God has not left us without signs and sure ways of evaluating who Jesus was, it's important for us and it should be encouraging to us because he is even the things of where Jesus would be born. Even the things of what tribe he would be from, the Jewish tribe, even the family lineage was outlined in scripture before Jesus came and thousands of years before he came, we we knew these things. The aspects of his ministry were outlined by Isaiah and that's where we get some of these four miraculous signs that that needed to be fulfilled that only Messiah could do. That should bring great confidence to you this morning. Because you have a God who's not far off, who's just saying, trust me, believe in me. Yes, he is calling out for all of us to trust in him and believe in him. But he's calling us to trust in and believe in him in a manner that is with education and which is with, with, we have all kinds of signs and we have fulfilled prophecies. And it's not some just fly by night, just trusting in something that hasn't been proven. 
God has left a witness for himself. He has testified of these things. He has orchestrated them and then he has fulfilled them. And so our faith is actually something very real and tangible. It's not something out there that we're just trusting in blindly. And so there's a substance to our faith and Jesus happens to be the substance of our faith. And so I hope that when you think about all of these messages that, that God had left us with and these specific prophecies that he had, had made the case for, make a symbol of that the Messiah was who he was saying he was going to be, that that will bring great encouragement to you and confidence in the Lord and in our Savior Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, let's just read verses 1 through 12 of chapter 9. I'll read it out loud. If you don't have your Bible, you can just listen. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And this is what it says. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born uh, blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the task assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, Go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as the blind beggar asked each other, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, he was and others said no. He, looks, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, Yes, I am the same one. They asked, Who healed you? What happened? He told them, The man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. Where is he now, they asked. I don't know, he replied. Let's take a moment and just pray for the service. God, we thank you this morning for our time of worship. We thank you for just the fellowship that we've already experienced, seeing people we love and care about. And we thank you, God, that we can be in this place to hear your word, to open your Bible, and to just learn more about who you are. Lord, I pray for every person in here this morning. I pray that you would bless them, that you would speak to them through your Holy Spirit. God, I ask that you would anoint me and help me, that God, you would make the message clear and that it would be empowered by your Holy Spirit. God, if you are not here by your Spirit, there's no point. And so I ask and I plead with you, God, may you do your work in our lives and may you use this time for your purposes. So we just commit our time to you. We ask for every distraction to be removed in the name of Jesus, that your word could come forth. I pray that hearts would be open and we just still ourselves before you now, God. And we just ask for you to work. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. So if you know anything about the Gospel of John, it's, it's a unique Gospel in the sense of the way that John wrote the Gospel of John and, and ver- compared to Matthew or, or even Luke or, or Mark's Gospels. But when you look in particular at chapter 9, it sits right in the middle of a situation with Jesus because in chapter 7, we're told that Jesus and his disciples are making their way up to the temple for the Feast of Tabernacles and they have an interaction with some of the Pharisees. In chapter 8, 
Jesus begins to make claims about himself, and he ends up at the end of chapter 8 disturbing these guys because he's claiming to be God and claiming to be God's son, which was blasphemy in their eyes. And so they're going to begin to look for a way to kill him. And so he escapes from them, and he heads out from there, out off the temple area. He was up on the temple mount. He had been teaching up at the temple. And this is where he sees this man born blind. This is where he runs into this man born blind. So, so chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 are all in about the same day period, same daytime period. It's about one full day in Jesus' life. And, and so you have to read those all kind of connected together. But we're dropped here in chapter 9 because this particular episode of the miracle is going to prove Jesus to be Messiah. He had already told them that he was the Son of God. He already told them that God was his Father and, and, and they get all ruffled up about it. And the people that are getting ruffled up about it are not the disciples or the common people or those that truly love God. It was actually the religious leaders, those that had this, this religious sense about them that they knew what was right. And they were the ones that were controlling the spiritual climate of the day in Israel. And they were the ones who Jesus was actually trying to get to change their mind and understand who he truly was. So when he claimed to be God, it got under their skin. And then when he does this miracle, it's going to bring them face to face with who Jesus truly was and is. Because there is no denying, because no one had ever done or accomplished this particular miracle before. There had been miracles of people who were blind being healed before. There had been miracles of people who had demons who had been cast out of them before. There had been miracles of healings before. But the reality was is that there was never ever such a case of an individual who had been born blind and then been healed by God, by the Messiah. In fact, that was the unique setting that it had to be for this particular miracle to take place and point to Jesus being Messiah. And that's where he finds this blind beggar at the temple. He's up at the temple. He's begging, which would have been common for this time of, of, of this day and age because they had no way to work. They had no welfare system. We didn't have any type of government structure at this point where they could get a check and, and, and take care of themselves and, and be supported in that way. What they had to do was rely on family and friends and then also the kindness of other people. So they would beg at the city and the temple gates. And they would go to the temple because they knew that the people who would have the most compassion on them would be those who worship God, usually. And so they would go there and they would appeal to them as they were bringing their offerings up to God, as they were coming up to worship God. And so it would give these people an opportunity to, at the very worst case situation, would be to prove their piety and give to some poor beggar. And at the best, to actually demonstrate God's love by helping provide for someone in great need. And so this would be why you would oftentimes see beggars and poor people and those that are disabled sitting at the, at the gates of the temple. You see this in the book of Acts as well. Later on with, uh, with Peter, he sees a guy at the gate, beautiful. The, the beautiful gate was the gate that would go right up into the temple. And Peter looks at this guy and he's begging and he says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And so this guy gets up and walks at, the, at Peter's words and he says, what I have for you is actually better than silver and gold. And this is, is what is going to happen with this man today. He's just looking for some temporary sustenance, some way to provide food for himself, some, some just relief for his condition. And Jesus is going to pick him out 
and he's going to approach him. And not only is he going to heal his physical infirmity, he's going to completely heal his spiritual infirmity and bring him, bring him into physical sight and spiritual sight as well. This story is not just about Jesus healing a guy born blind. It's actually much deeper than that. It's about spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. That's what this is about. And Jesus is going to use this moment to not only prove himself to be God, but also to bring a powerful lesson both to his disciples and to those who are rejecting him, the Pharisees. Because once they see this miracle, they're going to be confronted face to face with the reality of who he was. In fact, you could break this chapter into three little sections. Verses 1 through 12, which we just read, would just be the healing situation. And then you have a large section in the middle there, verses 13 through 34. And those would be the section where after the healing happens, an investigation is launched by the Pharisees. And so what they do is they begin to question the, the, beg, the, the man who was healed. They question the man who's, who was healed's parents. And then they begin to try and figure out what, who was this man that did this? Was he really, did he do this on the Sabbath? And all these things. And what they're doing is they're investigating so that they can find some hole in the story that would discount Jesus as being God. In fact, it's kind of funny when you read through the story there in verses 13 through 35, that part that we, we're not going to look at, but the, the beggar, the, he, the guy who gets healed, begins to lose his patience with the Pharisees. And at one point he's like, what, do you, you want to become a follower of Jesus too? Do you want to become one of his disciples? And they're like, why would we want to do that? And they're just getting more angry at, at the claims of the story and of this healing. And in fact the blind man finally brings him to a point where he's like, I don't even know. All I know is that I once was blind, but now I see, which is a beautiful, beautiful verse. And anyone who has come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who has surrendered to lordship by faith, moves from blindness into sight, from a spiritual sense. Anyone. You were once blind, but now you see. And if you talk to anyone who has been a Christian for any amount of time, they can look back on their life and they can say, you know, I like to call it my BC days and my AD days. My, my BC days before Christ, right? And then my AD days after death, after I died and became alive in Christ. And what I think about is my BC days, how I thought and the way I viewed things. We're all spiritually blind until we have this encounter with God, with Jesus. And then after the investigation time, the third section is verses 35 through 41, and that is Jesus makes a bold response to the Pharisees, and it really, really gets them worked up. I always love it when, when relationship and freedom come into contact with bondage and control. And whenever you have somebody who's living in freedom and who's been set free, and they start to encounter people who are being controlled or controlling, those people that are being controlled or controlling, they can't handle it. They just can't handle someone that lives in freedom and, and, and just has that aspect to their life. And it really drives them bananas. And it ultimately is what they desire. But there's a specific reason why they haven't been able to experience that freedom. There's something that's holding them back. And we'll get into that in a few minutes. So in verses 1 through 5, I'm just going to reread those real quick because I want to look at those for a second. It says, as Jesus walking along, he saw a man who had been born blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sins 
or his parents' sin. So the disciples ask a really weird question. They want to know why this guy was born blind. Why was he born without the ability to, to see? Why was he given this disability? And what's strange about that question is that there was a mindset during the day, and it was passed down through the Pharisees, the religious system, that a person, if you had sin in your life and you had a child, the sin of your life, the, the judgment of that sin could visit your children. In other words, it could, because of the way you lived, it could affect your children, and God would bring judgment on your children because of the way you lived. And listen, this is, this is crazy. There was also another belief that they had that when a child was in the womb, that when it was conceived, after the moments after it was conceived, they believed that at the point of conception that the fetus had two inclinations that, that they're called the Yetzer Hara, which means the evil inclination, and the Yetzer Hatav, which means the good inclination. And they believed that these two natures would be at war in the womb during the entire eight-month pregnancy. And they would, all, they would be fighting for control. So when you take those two aspects of what's being said here in this question, you can understand why they might ask that. Well, were his parents just really bad sinners and did, done something really, really wrong, and so God was in, you know, judging him for that? Or what, did the battle inside the womb go over to the bad side, the evil inclination, and so now because of that he's being judged before he had even stepped foot on the earth? Is he being judged by God in some sinful condition? And it's just a bizarre question to ask. It's a bizarre thing to think about. And thank God we have a real answer to this question. The reality is, is we are all born into sin. The battle's lost at conception. In fact, David confessed that in, in Psalm 53. He said, I was sinful at my conception. I was sinful at my mother's, at my birth. And so David confessed that even before you're born, you are sinful and we are sinful. We're born separated from God. Jesus, when he was speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he tells Nicodemus that a man is going to be born of water. In other words, when your water breaks, a baby is born. He goes, and everyone will be born of water, but you also must be born of spirit. So we must be born of spirit in order to have eternal life. And what he's telling us is that we are not born with that part of us that is made for eternity with God. We are separated from Him. And that needs to be born by the Spirit of God Himself. That needs to happen through God's power. When you look at verses 6 and 7, after he, they, Jesus kind of dismisses this question that the disciples ask, and He says, neither, He says, neither His parents or Him, this was done for God's glory. He then spits on the ground, and it says in verses 6 and 7, He spits on the ground, made mud with the saliva, spread mud over the blind man's eyes, and he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed, and he came back seeing. Now this just seems strange to me. And I had to look into this a little bit. And I was wondering what God was doing. And thank God that Jesus did not work in conventional ways all the time. You know, I mean, think about some of the things that he did that were crazy. Do you remember when Peter needed to pay taxes and Jesus instructs him, hey, go down, catch a fish, you're going to open the mouth of the fish and the money that you need for your taxes are going to be in there. You know, and I, I love that and, and I'm taking up fishing because of that. Um, 
And so you should too. It would be good. And if we find that fish, we'll keep it alive and we'll just keep... It's like the goose that laid the golden egg, right? But Jesus takes and he looks at the ground, he spits into the mud, and then he takes it and he rubs it on this guy's eyes, and then he sends him off to go to this pool of Siloam. And it's just kind of crazy. Think it, try and put yourself in the blind man's shoes. Here you are, begging. You can't see anything. You can hear Jesus. You hear all the crowds. You hear all, all this stuff. And all of a sudden, he says, hey, you're going to see... And you hear, you know, like just a nice, I wonder if it was a solid one. And he just plops it, you hear it plop into the, you know, maybe you step back so he wouldn't spit on his feet or I don't know. And then all of a sudden, just applied to his face. And and so now, and then he's like, hey, you want to go see, go down to the pool and wash off. You'll be seen. And the blind man's like, thanks, thanks, Jesus thanks. I'm already don't know what I'm wearing. And now I've got mud on my face. Thanks. And so you can imagine him trying to work through the crowds, walking down to the pool of Siloam, and then finally washing off. I mean, completely unconventional. It's, an ama- it's amazing. If Jesus would have gone by, and, and here's the other thing. I heard someone say this one time. <laughs> if that would have worked every time, we would have like mud healing ministries now. Like people like, Okay, everyone come up after church. We're going we're gonna to anoint you with mud and go wash off and you'll be fine. You know, like it would be some weird thing. Thank God we don't have to do things like that. On a, uh, when I was researching this, I found a great, uh, a, a great commentary by a guy named Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And he's a Jewish believer, a really, a really amazing theologian. And this is what he says about it. I love this. He says, John 9 is very significant that of all the places Jesus could have sent the man to wash his eyes, he sent him to only one pool of the many in Jerusalem, the pool of Siloam. This pool was not easy to get to from the main part of Jerusalem because he had to walk down a steep hill. John 7 tells us that this is the week of the Feast of Tabernacles, and during this feast there was a special ritual called the outpouring of water. This is a ritual the priests would come down from the Temple Mount to the Pool of Siloam, fill jugs with water from the Pool of Siloam, march back up to the Temple Mount, and pour out the water onto the laver um, within the Temple compound. This was followed by great rejoicing. During the Feast of Tabernacles, the main pool, which was the center of Jewish attention, was the Pool of Siloam, the one pool that had the greatest number of Jewish people present who would observe this third Messianic miracle. So when you think about what Jesus was doing and why he was doing it, you think of how he was accomplishing something even greater than you thought of. Because during this Feast of, of, of Tabernacles, they had this, this special thing that they would do where they would, the priests would go down and fill up these pots with water and then they would go up and they would dump it over this, this laver, which was where they would do an offering, and the people would, re- would rejoice. And it was sort of the kickoff to the Feast of Tabernacles. If once the priest did that, then they could, they could join in the festivities and they could partake in the feast. And so it was this kickoff. So everybody was observing and everyone would have been down at the pool of Siloam and everyone would have seen this blind man working his way down to get there and then getting in the water and then coming out of the water and being able to see and proclaiming that Jesus had done this very thing. You see, there is nothing that God does that is by accident There is nothing that God does that is not thought out. And there is nothing that God does that is just coincidence. I call them God incidents, not coincidences. 
Because God is sovereign. And he knew exactly what he was doing in this moment. I love how these little things that you start to unpack about the story and you can find out and, and it brings so much more life to the story. I want to, before we move on from that verse, I just want to look at the elements for just a minute. Hidden in this action of this healing is actually a presentation of the gospel, believe it or not. When you think about Jesus, as he's standing in front of this blind man, he spits onto the ground and he mingles his spit with the mud. And the mud is very symbolic of just straight up humanity. In Genesis chapter 3, verses, verse 19, it says, By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. We are made of dust. And when God made Adam, he formed him together from the dust, and he breathed into his nostrils. The word that is used there in the Greek is pneuma, which is the same verse that we get for our Holy Spirit. And so he breathes life into Adam and gives him life, but he was made of dust. Eve, a little bit better, but still all the same ingredients, taken out of, out of Adam's rib and made, but still same ingredients because Adam was already made. So we are dirt. That's what we are. We are dirt. And the mud there is symbolic of humanity, of us, of all of us today, our, our human condition. But Jesus was on a mission. He was sent from God. And this is going to seem weird. Stick with me, please. It's already been weird enough this morning, so why not just make it even more weird? But he spits onto the mud. And he mingles his spit with the blood. And this is exactly what God did. God came from heaven and he became a man. He became like one of us. He was fully man and fully God. He left divinity, put on skin, and became a man. And for 33 or so years, he walked around as a living man, yet fully God. And he commingled with humanity. You see, God was so interested in you and I that he wouldn't stand far off and say, this is what I need you to do to get to me. He says, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to rescue you. You can't get to me. I'm coming after you. And that's exactly what he did when he sent Jesus. Jesus came to become one of us. He came to give his life for us as one of us, being judged for our own humanity, our own sinfulness, when he didn't deserve it a bit. And so the, the gospel is hidden in the story because then he's told to go from there with the mud on his face to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And water is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, the washing of God's word, the reality that God brings new life. Jesus said, if any of you believes in me, as the scriptures say, out of you will flow torrents of living water. The Holy Spirit is represented of living water. And so he goes and washes in the pool of Siloam. And he comes out seeing. He once was blind, but now he sees. In this story, in this bizarre, unconventional ministry method that Jesus uses to heal and to demonstrate he, that he is Messiah and God is the gospel message wrapped up in it. He was never off point ever. Jesus always knew what he was here to do and what he was here to accomplish. And he never moved away from that ever. 
And you see this consistently through the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. And it's a beautiful thing. And we must not miss that. The the beggar was physically blind and spiritually blind. Yet, both his eyes and his heart were opened. Because he listened to the word, he believed it, he obeyed God, and he experienced the grace of God. Think about this for just a minute. Jesus was putting the man in a position where he had to act out on faith and he had to obey what Jesus was telling him to do. He had to trust Jesus' direction and commands if he wanted to have the outcome that he desired, which is to be able to see. So Jesus spits on him, muds him up, and says, go wash. This was now, God had done his part. And now he was sending this man to do his part. He was giving him an opportunity to act on faith. It was going to be a journey for this man, this blind man. And Jesus used unconventional methods in his ministry, and he did this on purpose. He could have used any method he wanted. He could have just looked at the guy, and the guy could have, eyes could have been healed. He could have spoken. He could have waited four hours later. He could have done whatever he wanted, yet he chose to use that method. And the word Siloam, where he was called to go wash, means sent. That's what it means in Hebrew. And this is exactly what God's design is for you and I. Those of us in here this morning who call on Jesus, He is our Lord and Savior, we are, we are Christians in that sense, we are now been, being placed on mission. And this is exactly what Greg was alluding to last week when he was speaking to us, that we're not called just to gather and, and be in this place and hear a good message and sing a couple songs. We're actually called to be out into the world sharing this truth with the lost and dying world who desperately needs to hear it and desperately wants to hear it. They just don't know that they want to hear it. And God has called the church to be on mission, moving outside the doors of the building. And the word sent speaks to that specifically. Your life is a testimony. Your life is a testimony to what God has done in you and through you. And it is a powerful force that God uses to bring the truth into the lives of those that do not yet know Him. Do not discount your life and the story of Jesus and how He's worked in your life and the power that it holds. We oftentimes look to other people's stories and we say, oh, well, that person was really bad. They were a druggie or they were this or whatever. Listen, anyone who moves from death into life, it's a miracle. A miracle. It's just a matter of how far into the depths of sin are you. That's all it is. But everyone needs that rescue. And not everyone needs to have some rescued drug dealer you know, previous drug dealer to speak to them. Sometimes they need a guy that actually grew up in a Christian home. Someone who's seen faithfulness in their family, but yet they chose not yet to accept it. Sometimes they need that story. I used to have, I have a brother-in-law, and he was, his father was a pastor. And some of you guys know my testimony a little bit. And my brother-in-law was raised in a Christian home, and, and he has just an amazing testimony in the sense that he never rebelled. He never had one of those seasons where he's like, you know, I like to call it stretching the legs of grace, uh, you know, where you go off to college and you try alcohol or whatever. And I, 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 he's never had one of those. He just was a good guy all the way through. Obeyed his parents, 
honored the Lord. He just steady Eddie all the way through. And we were roommates before I introduced him to my sister. He was the only one good enough for my sister, by the way. But I remember one time he said to me, because I was, in my family, I was the first to encounter Jesus. And so, and my life was quite a mess. Quite, quite a mess. And so God had some work to do. And we were comparing our testimonies for some reason. And I can remember that he said to me, I, I just don't, like my, I'm kind of boring. I'm, like, I never really have anything. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And I remembered how awesome it is for a parent to be able to raise their children in the Lord and to have their children walk steadily with the Lord for their life. What an honor that is to God. Your testimony is, is that you honored the Lord and He honored you and kept you in His grace. That He didn't have to come after you. He didn't have to chase you down with the hounds of heaven and bring you to some rock-bottom prodigal son experience. There's power in all of these testimonies and God desires to use all of them. And so don't lose sight in that. And God means sent. The silo means sent. That's what it means. The pool of silo means sent. And we are all being placed on mission. We are sent messengers of the work of God in our own lives. If you look at the progression of this blind man, in verse 11, his testimony is that a man they called Jesus healed me. And then in verse 17, he's questioned again, and he calls Jesus a prophet. And then a little bit further on when he's questioned, he says Jesus is from God. So now he's moved from a man named Jesus, a prophet, from God. And then finally he has an encounter because after all of this questioning by these Pharisees with this healed man, he finally has an encounter with Jesus because they put him out of the synagogue. They're like, you can't even be in here with us. And so he's now lost his church family. He's lost a bunch of friends. He got sight. The poor guy never even asked for any of this, by the way. did he? <laughs> but what's about to happen is going to be amazing. And he will never regret Because what he's going to gain is going to be greater than any of those things combined. And that is that he will find eternal life. Because Jesus comes to him and he talks to him specifically. And then he ends up calling Jesus Lord and he worships him. This man was on a journey, a faith journey. And everyone we know is on some kind of faith journey. Some people are much closer to that moment of salvation and others are a little bit further away. But we cannot discount our part in helping them along the way. We must understand that your life has power in the story of your relationship with God. He's a living God. You know, it's, it's, as, it's as if, 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 you're, if you're married in here and you're sharing with someone who's single about your marriage, you're going to talk about your wife in a real way because she is married to you and she's real. Our relationship with God is real. He's alive. He's living today. And we must speak of that encounter in such a way. So, this man had an accepting message from Jesus, and he receives both life and physical healing. But the Pharisees, not so much. In fact, listen to what Jesus speaks to them in verses 39 through 41, and I'm, I'm going to close in a second. It says, Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are really blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby him asked, Are you saying we're blind? If 
if you were blind, you would be guilty. You, would, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. What's interesting about that statement is that those that thought they could see and those that claimed they could see were actually the worse off. They were the ones who were truly blind. And if they would have just looked at the claims and looked at what Jesus did, if they would have investigated honestly instead of looking for some reason to discount it, they could have come to the same place that that blind man came, and that is to find healing and salvation. They, it was available to them as well. In fact, the one thing that Jesus never gave in on was hypocrisy. He could not stand hypocrisy. And the Pharisees were guilty of hypocrisy. They claimed that they could see. They claimed that they had the truth. And they claimed that that was something that had been given to them and them uniquely. But yet, they were as blind as you could get. And so what happened is Jesus would not tolerate that. And he brought them to a place where he said, if you just would believe, you would see. And he used a guy who had no ability to bring himself into sight, to understand any of these things. He used an example of something completely weak to demonstrate his strength and his power. And the greatest danger that we have is if we're sitting here this morning and we have not yet come to Jesus the way that Jesus wants us to come to him, then we are in danger of those Pharisees. And you are in danger of being spiritually blind yourself. I don't speak this to you to condemn you in any way. I don't speak this as any type of judgment. I speak this as an appeal, as one who is calling out to you a gentle warning in love that there is something greater, but you have to come to him at his terms. You see, the Pharisees had made a God of their own. They said, no, this is how it's going to be. This is what it's going to be. And when Jesus came, they completely missed him because he didn't line up with what they had made. God will rarely work to our standard. He will rarely reveal himself in the ways that we think he should reveal himself. And we have to be humble enough to accept that.